welcome to Sage and Spirit, a podcast designed to nourish your mind, body, soul, and spirit. I'm your host, Anna Claire Lottie, and I'm so grateful you're here. In this holistic wellness podcast, I'll be having candid conversations with others, exploring topics such as healing with plants, food as medicine, earth connection, spirituality, conscious entrepreneurship, and so much more. Thank you for being here and sharing in this journey with me. Hello, and welcome back to Sage and Spirit and to the very first episode of 2022. I hope that your new year is off to a great start and that you're navigating these times with as much grace and ease as possible. I'm bringing you today's episode just after the first full moon of this year, and it was the full wolf moon in Cancer. And while I'm no astrologist, I am also aware that we are currently in Mercury retrograde, which just started earlier this week, maybe about a week ago. And also we are in the midst of Venus retrograde. And there's some sort of interworkings with Uranus as well. And um, so, yeah, really interesting times that we're living in. So this is a continued trend um, (laughs) from at least the past couple of years, right? Um, So anyway... Yeah, I it's been a really interesting start to the new year. It feels like there's a lot of great energy that is going to be coming into play after we sort of finish this time of reflection and introspection, and I'm excited to see what lies ahead this year. Today, I'm also really looking forward to bringing you this episode with a beautiful dear friend, Jennifer Holmes. And I actually met Jennifer recently as she was one of our participants on our recent retreat in the Sacred Valley of Peru. And Jennifer and I had the opportunity to spend about a week and a half together and get to know each other and do ceremony together. And I just really enjoyed being in her energy and you'll you'll see we talk about she's a really nurturing and lovely person to be around and i really appreciated this opportunity to speak with her today and get to know her on a deeper level and get to know a little bit more about the work she does in the world and her relationship with bees so today we're talking all about beekeeping and what that means to her how it plays out in her life And we talk about some really interesting aspects. We talk about some of the ancestral knowledge when it comes to beekeeping and what this looks like to her, what it means to her. She talks about how she has traveled all around the world, meeting with other beekeepers, learning about their traditions. She tells us a couple of really neat stories in this regard. And she also talks about these events that she goes to where she actually judges and tastes different bee products such as honey and mead, which sounds super fascinating to me. I'm such a sensory person. And to think about tasting honeys and meads much in the same way that a wine sommelier would do, 
um, sounds, first of all, really fun and tasty, but also just really interesting to hear that just as many nuances can play out in these flavors that we derive from bees and from the byproducts of their lives and their hives. So we talk about these different ways um, that Jen, that Jennifer works with the bees and also all the different ways in which beekeeping can support health. We talk about, of course, honey, but also propolis and venom therapy, which is incredibly interesting and a bit avant-garde. We also talk about breathing in the air from the hive. And this is something that I would love to try sometime. This is something I've never heard of. And I just found to be really, um, first of all, it makes a lot of sense. It just sounds like it would be incredibly calming. And I'm interested to hear what you all might think when you hear about some of these different therapies. She also mentioned some others that I haven't heard of and that maybe you haven't heard of either. Um, she talks about this concept of festooning, which I point out later in the episode, but I highly recommend that you look up uh, photos on the internet of festooning because it's the cutest, sweetest thing that you just might see. And we just talk about all the different kinds of diversity that there is in beekeeping, the lifestyles, traditions, beliefs, and it was really just such a joy to hear about all of these different ways in which the bees can nurture us. And I know that in recent years, there's been a lot more emphasis put out into the world on saving the bees and and how much their interaction with our ecosystems really mean to life in general, how much bees support life all over our planet. And so I really hope that that is a focus um, for you as you're listening today in this episode and that you really are able to see how much bees do support us and our ecosystems and the plants and animals that we cohabitate with in this world and in these lands. A little bit more about Jennifer. She and her husband, Chris, and their entire family enjoy their growing apiary and their cafe and meadery, Honey Honey Company, in Stewart, Florida. Jennifer is a UFIFAS master beekeeper, as well as a senior Welsh honey judge. She's the current president of the Florida State Beekeepers Association, and she's also a chair of the Slow Food Gold and Treasure Coast. Jennifer is active as a speaker on many beekeeping topics and travels worldwide to continue to learn and contribute positively to the beekeeping industry. Providing honey along with bees, queens, and other products of the hive locally, as well as pollination services, is a big part of her current activities. Support and education in the community to both new and experienced beekeepers is also a vital part of her beekeeping practice. Although beekeeping is a main component of how Jennifer is received in her community, she maintains a posture of engagement with nature and full spectrum of enjoyment, producing ferments from locally foraged, locally grown foods, and has a forever passion for food and farmers. Again, it was really such a joy, a pleasure, and an honor to speak with Jennifer today, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. 
Hey, Jennifer, how are you today? I, if I was any better, you would definitely feel my smile. <laughs> well, I feel your larger. smile anyway, so I'd say that's a good thing. We were just talking and you said it's in the 80s where you are in Florida, and I'm super jealous because it's supposed to get down to 13 here tonight in the mountains oh, of North goodness. Carolina. I know. So, but you know, I'm I'm keeping the wood stove going and staying as cozy as possible. So uh, yeah, making, making the best of it, but it's super great to have you here on the show today. And I'm really excited to talk about beekeeping and I'd love to just jump right in and maybe you could share a little bit about yourself and how you came to do this work in the world. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Um, a little bit about me. Oh my gosh. I am a very happy and fun-loving individual um, entering the more mature phase of my life, which is kind of special to share with everybody because sometimes I'm in a crowd of people that are much younger than me and um, thankful because they look to me for a little bit of advice. And I sort of feel like I might be in that um, almost elder phase. <laughs> and when I was younger, thinking about that coming up was so far away. And now it's like, right here. And so I'm learning to embrace it, enjoy it, and let others know that it's really a very special experience, the journey of life, you know, getting to all these different phases of life. So I'm a mother. Um, I'm a business owner. I have a business here in Stewart, Florida, where I live with my husband and my children. Um, two of my three children are grown to the point where they don't always live at home. So they live on their own or go to school or live outside the immediate area. And I have one son who's 16 and still lives with us. Um, we keep, besides the honeybees, we keep a multitude of farm animals. We have pigs and chickens and several dogs and cats and just about any critter you can think of. Um, <clears throat> I'm primarily known as a bee lady, which I like, or a honey lady. I'm, I'm cool with either of those two things. But before I got into beekeeping, I did a lot of really interesting things. I experienced so many fun things in this life. Um, I'm into, I'm a plant person. I'm into herbalism. I'm into um, many things, like including traveling and getting to know um, culturally what's happening out there in the world and ancestral knowledge. And gosh, there's just so much. Um, I could go on and on. <laughs> but that's, that's a little bit about me. Yeah, I love that you shared all of that. So thank you. And I would have to agree that my experience with you definitely speaks to your happy and fun loving self and, and advice giving too. Um, we just recently spent a good amount of time in Peru together on retreat. And I know you sort of almost deemed yourself as kind of like one of the mamas in the group. And I think a lot of, a lot of us felt that and a lot of our participants felt that and you, you just exude such a, such a caring and nurturing presence, I would say more than anything. And I feel like that's always welcome, especially in today's world. So, so really grateful that you are the happy and fun loving individual that you are and that you're excited to share that with other people. And I love hearing about your home and all these different animals that you're keeping and your pigs and your chickens and dogs and cats. And um, so how long have you actually been keeping bees? So I started keeping bees about 15 years ago, which isn't a relatively long period of time. Um, in my experience, people that I meet that are farmers or um, 
have a trade that spans past their current generation um, is so impressive. And I get so excited when I meet people that are um, part of a family um, of beekeepers or farming, you know, same thing, like, oh, I'm second or third generation. So it's a relatively new thing for me in this life. And and my husband, my husband's a beekeeper as well. And we were not beekeepers when we met. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> we've been so you've gotten to explore years. together. That's yes. Um, so that kind of brings me to how I started beekeeping. And I started beekeeping because I expressed an interest and I shared a little bit with you about how much I enjoy different things like plant medicine and plants. And I did not tell you this part yet, but I know, you know, this Anna Claire, because we just spent some magical time together in the land of Peru, which is also the land of some amazingly delicious food. I'm a foodie at heart. I love Mm. to prepare food as much as I love to eat food. So Um, naturally I was interested in pollinators because of their impact on our food system. And, um, you know, just being a a concerned person and a passionate person um, about other life, I always questioned how things were changing in the world. And I noticed, you know, uh, things were a little bit more difficult as far as getting uh, quality food. And when I say the word quality, I mean, in all aspects like flavor, nutrition, Um, I I started to notice things that were common in childhood, like playing with earthworms and seeing mycelium and and noticing that the the soil uh, composition was different. And um, having moved from the northeastern part of the United States to Florida, midlife was a whole nother experience for me as well, learning how to garden here. Um, And I saw a change even in the short period of time living here from about the 15 year ago mark when I started beekeeping to now, keeping bees and um, raising them in a healthy way. And the healthy way that I would consider would be without using any chemicals in order to keep them healthy, without giving them any uh, nutrition, extra nutrition, them just being able to simply forage and bring home nectar, pollen, sap, or any other um, things that they needed, which is basically what they require, right? They're not only are they so cool that they can fly <laughs> and they on the planet for my gosh, for what seems like forever, they um, simply live on a diet of nectar and um, pollen. So a plant-based diet, if necessary, they will consume um, other insects or their own um, young if necessary for nutrition, um, but they need water, air, and those other things. And, and they can sustain themselves. They don't need to hit the local grocer or farm market or any of those things, but um, I've seen a drastic shift in the last decade from the quality and quantity of honey that a single beehive can produce. So naturally I started wondering what was going on and I felt it. So I started exploring a little bit and um, you know, there's a lot that I could say, but basically I encourage people daily that I meet to consider the effect of how we operate on a daily basis, like our interactions with nature, um, what we require versus what we want and what we consume and what we offer, like what we give back in order to support not only pollinators or just honeybees, let's say all pollinators or all life. Honeybees are something that I specialize in, but they're not something that I primarily focus on. Um, Again, I get to be known as the bee lady or the honey lady, but when I think about it, it's really all life. I get just as excited or mesmerized when I see a butterfly or a hummingbird or a flower as I do honeybees. So that's a little bit about um, how I feel, but I never really told you how I started beekeeping. (laughs) (laughs) 
I got a, a lesson. I, my husband got me a lesson with a commercial beekeeper right here in the town that I live. Um, and I started out volunteering on the farm. And the farm was primarily located along the coastal area here where I live, um, southeastern Florida on the coast. And um, the Florida coastal landscape is really special and beautiful and unique. Um, there's a lot of really interesting things that grow here. It's um, a subtropical environment heading towards tropical with the increase in temperatures. It's a very humid environment. Um, there's a lot of a lot of wildlife. There's a lot of beautiful birds and other um, animals that live here. Um, and just spending time in nature in a 20 or 30 acre parcel here um, really gave me a sense of um, peace and calmness. And then interacting with the bees, literally the first time I interacted with a beehive, I was pretty much hooked. It, it really didn't take much. I saw them, I felt them, their energy, the buzz, the, the vibration. Um, and I, and I smelled the smells that emanate from the hive and, um, I didn't really want to do anything else. That was pretty much it for me. So I spent a few years doing that, you know, volunteering, working on the farm and then slowly, but surely learned how to raise bees on my own. Um, so I acquired a few beehives and started growing bees and, um, it took about several years for me to become uh, efficient enough at keeping the bees alive to start harvesting some honey. And by then people were asking me for honey, you know, where's the honey? You have bees. That's the first thing people want to know. Where is the honey? Um, so I started sharing honey with friends. And before I knew it, I started a small business selling honey right here in our town. Oh, that's so amazing. I love that story. And it just makes me think and, and really reflect on how inspiring it can be to just spend time in nature. And when we start to really observe things at that level and we watch the animals around us and how they interact with the ecosystem and, and how it's all interconnected at all moments in time, right? And then we get to interact with that too, which is such a blessing. Um, we interact with it regardless, right? But when we can do that with intention, um, it can just be so enriching and so rewarding. And we can also give back, just like you mentioned, you know, I think that's such an important aspect and something that we actually talked a little bit about in Peru is this concept of Aini or sacred reciprocity, where, you know, we're always being gifted with something. We're always receiving something, whether it's from nature or our environment or the people around us. And so asking ourselves that question, like you said, how do we give back? How can we contribute um, to the land and the people and the animals and the ecosystems around us? And so I, I just love that. I think it's so beautiful that you have gotten into this work. And I know that there's so much that that you do with it too. And that it's not just about the honey. Um, you know, it seems like there's definitely an interaction and I would, I would guess as well, a relationship that you form with the bees and with the hives. And I know that there is also some, um, background and sort of ancestral knowledge when it comes to beekeeping. And I'm interested to hear sort of what you know about that and what it means to you and, and maybe how it influences your relationship with the hives that you tend. And by the way, how many hives do you have right now? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I get that one a lot. So um, we fluctuate in the amount of hives that we keep right now. We have probably about 75 to 125 colonies. 
um, in winter, which 85 degrees, it's still winter here um, following the nature cycle. Honeybees are keenly aware of the lack of food and water. Um, and just prior to the solstice, they were really reserving everything that they had and not reproducing. So they had less babies to feed and um, they kind of kicked the boys out in winter. That's a whole nother fun story. But um, basically in the fall, when um, resources start to dwindle, all the girls get together and um, take the males and kind of push them off the front step of the hive. And they are, um, they, they have to kind of fend for themselves. Oh, wow. <laughs> and the queen lays less eggs. Um, so less mouths to feed. And then again, like I said, as soon as solstice hits, the bees just kind of figure out that thing spring is coming, you know, they know. Um, and so they start amping up production of, of um, laying eggs and getting ready to collect nectar. Um, so thinking about it like that is, is really kind of interesting. Um, the interaction part that you just mentioned really means a lot to me. And, and it leads into like a a topic of um, diversity, which we'll talk about, but ancestrally beekeeping, I mean, it's a journey. It's part of the process for me is discovering some of the things that I sort of felt when I started beekeeping, but I didn't really have actual factual knowledge. And, and I still don't have a lot. I'm honestly a student of the topic and I think it's beautiful, but a lot of my experience, it has to do with traveling and meeting beekeepers all over the world and asking them about their experiences and their family members and any generations prior to them that kept bees. And the ones that I've learned a lot from are, I would say, the experiences where people or humans over time have interacted with bees in nature. So bees would reside along the side of a cliff, say in the Himalayas or in the cavity of a tree naturally and humans would, um, when there was ample um, resources, they would take a little bit of the honey and it could be a, a family experience or um, just a solo experience, but it depends on the species of bee or uh, where they're located. You can see some pretty neat footage in some awesome documentaries where you can see four or five people staged. It looks like they're getting ready to, to climb a cliff face and they've, you know, they've got carabiners and they've got baskets and there's smoke traveling up the face of the cliff. And, um, and they take the day to go up there and trim off some of the excess pieces of um, capped honey and they bring it home and it's a treasure. They bring it home to their family and their community. Um, so ancestrally, those are the types of stories um, that if I've gleaned them, either from meeting people that did it personally or seeing, seeing that through a documentary, I felt, um, you know, very much like that's what I envisioned, um, a natural experience uh, with pollinators rather than the way that I've learned to keep bees, which is in a box with frames and um, removable frames, which is what's required where I live. Um, and uh, they can't live in the cavity of a tree or, um, you know, any, any place like that because they have to be inspectable. And one of the reasons that is the case is to prevent disease, transmission of disease, and for us to be able to actually uh, monitor the bees and keep an eye on them. It's not to say that there aren't feral colonies of bees, because um, there are, and certainly we are always monitoring that. I personally look for feral bees, um, and I am seeing less of them. Um, over the last few years and less of some of the other pollinator species. So um, not to mention that in a very doom and gloom um, way, but just to bring it to everybody's attention that 
Um, it really would be nice if we could focus on planting more um, forage and we could pay attention to some of those things. So, and even in our gardening, if we're, if we're creating um, a habitat or a food scape or any kind of garden, if we could plant a little excess for our friends and let things go to flower so that they have some food. Um, I feel like that would really benefit like all life. Um, so that's just something that I, I'm personally really passionate about sharing. Um, but ancestrally, the only other thing I would like to, to add to that is that my family moved to the United States in the early 1900s from um, Eastern Europe. So I have some family directly um, from Poland and Russia. And it was really neat being um, young here in the United States when I was growing up because my great aunts and my grandparents spoke Polish and I got to meet my great grandfather um, and I had, you know, cultivated a really special relationship with him. And um, he passed when I was pretty young and my family stopped speaking Polish and kind of um, was one of the things that I wished I had uh, the opportunity to be a little older and requested that they continue to talk about the, you know, their, where they were from and some of the traditions we kept through holidays, but not on a daily basis. But as I got older and started getting interested in nature and plant medicine and, and then finally honeybees, I felt a strong connection to my family. So even though I wasn't able to answer the question, like, do I have any beekeepers in my, my lineage or ancestrally, I have a strong feeling that my family lived off the land where they, where they came from. Um, and I know a little bit about it because when I was growing up, the way that we ate was very much in line with um, a more holistic and balanced way. If, if we consumed an animal, we consumed all of the animal. You know, we, we didn't leave anything um, to waste. And, um, and I know there was some farming practices, but I'd like to think, maybe dream a little bit that my family kept these my ancestors. So I feel a strong connection to that. That's really beautiful. And I think when, you know, when we feel those things coming through in our pursuits, there's definitely something to that, you know, and, and you don't, it's fun sometimes to know, and it can be really interesting if there are stories to be told. Um, but at the same time, just having that, that intuitive feeling and, and leaning into that, I think it says a lot. And so absolutely, I would imagine that your ancestors somewhere along the way had relationships with bees and maybe it was through their farming. Maybe it was through some of these other endeavors, like you've mentioned. I love the story that you told um, about how people would climb these cliffs and take all of these sort of tools up the cliffs with them all to get this, you know, probably small prized piece of, of honeycomb or capped honey and just the the vision sort of like the visual I was getting with that story was really fun so I don't have you ever had any sort of experience like that in your travels or I wonder you know just as you mentioned traveling the world and speaking with other people who have relationships with bees are there any experiences that kind of are at the top of your list or that you've really enjoyed learning about when you've been in your travels abroad? Somewhat. It's such a great question because I seek it and I, I feel like it's something I'm creating as I go through the journey. Um, I did have a really special trip about four or five years ago. I work with um, an international organization called Slow Food 
And every two years, they have an event in Italy called Terra Madre. And I had the opportunity to attend Terra Madre a couple of years ago and also speak, which was such a great experience. So I sat on a panel with several other beekeepers from all over the world. And the topic was um, about what's going on with honeybees and the decline of honeybees. And, and we were just um, taking some time to dive into that topic and, and our experience. And um, what was probably one of the most, most profound experiences was we were hosted by families in the area, which, which was beautiful. Um, but I got on the bus every day and we were going back to the town we were staying. And all of a sudden it started to click that everyone on the bus were beekeepers, <laughs> literally from all over the world and from all, all places, all walks of life. There were some, um, there were some PhD doctorates and instructors. There were some beautiful beekeepers from the Himalayas. There were some really beautiful people that lived here in the U S that were indigenous and it was just a really, um, really neat experience. So that's where some of the stories that I shared came from, because we all started networking with each other and, and talking and breaking bread each day. And, um, and that was a life-changing experience. So, but I seek more of that. I think that's something that I'd like to cultivate. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Just, I mean, first of all, to go to Italy, I haven't ever been to Italy, not yet. Anyway, it's been coming up a lot recently. So maybe, maybe it's in my future. Um, but to attend an event like that and to be a part of sort of this bigger collective. Um, I know when I've just been to herbal symposiums and conferences in the past, it really is such a different experience, even than just being in a class full of herbalists. When you're in the midst of a hundred or hundreds of people and you're all there because you have this genuine shared interest in the same topic and you can share stories and experiences um, that just, it's such an incredibly enriching and, and humbling experience a lot of times too, you know, just to hear other people's stories and, and the things that they've been through and, and to share that and make those connections that, you know, maybe in, in the future, you're able to go visit them and their part of the world and, and have some of those shared experiences together. Um, you would just, love Terra Madre. Let's go. Oh, I bet. I would love that. What part of Italy was it in? It's in uh, Turin. Where's that? <laughs> yeah, so I want to say it's central to north, um, but I'm I'm not quite positive because I've been to other parts of Italy as well. But um, when I went there, I only went to Turin and didn't really travel outside the the area. So nice. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to go. I've um, I don't know much about Italy and geography is not my strong point. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, I'm down. Let's do it sometime. I'd love to do that. And I'm sure there's so much to learn. And then, you know, I'm a foodie too. So to eat some good, amazing food in Italy, I would be all about that. <laughs> and to learn more about the plants and, and the bees, that would just be you would not like have to twist my arm. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm like, okay, should we just look at flights now or, <laughs> Um, well, you know, we, we've mentioned honey a lot and, um, I want to get back to some of the other points too, about diversity, like you mentioned and that sort of thing. Um, but as far as honey goes, well, I have two kind of a twofold question here, actually, first of all, I'm wondering, I'm curious if you have a favorite honey or if there's like a certain honey from maybe a specific flower that you really love, or if there's just like ever been one honey that you're like, this is the best honey I've ever tasted. So that's the first question. And then the second thing I wanted to maybe kind of launch into next is 
you know, a lot of people obviously know that we get honey from bees, um, but there's so many other parts of beekeeping and so many other sort of byproducts of that process um, that we can work with and that we can utilize for our own health and wellness. And so I wonder if you might want to speak to that a little bit too. Oh my gosh. So <laughs> that could be a whole episode, I'm sure. But <laughs> <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> right. The honey question is such a good one. Um, and it really makes me think a little bit about the thing that we have in common, which is how much we love plants. So for as many plants as there are, there's a honey. Oh my gosh. Um, any flowering plant, I should say, but not necessarily because there's all different types of honey. There's even honey that's collected from um, dew that's been secreted by aphids. That's considered honeydew. Um, and there are some really good honeydews from conifers that I like a lot. Um, Ooh, that sounds good. Say, gosh, are we limited to the continental U.S. or can we go? No, let's let's the whole world here. Well, first of all, I tried some honey in Peru from Sandra's friend Olga. Oh my goodness gracious, so good! I have yet to find out what some of the floral sources are, but it is unbelievably good. Um, it just kind of brings me back though, because when we were in Peru together, there is just that fragrance in the air that is a sensory experience that is filed under Peru in my brain. And when I eat that honey, it goes right back there. So I think that way about honey all the time. I have done some training on honey sensory analysis in Italy also. So in Bologna, because Italy is so keen on having honey be recognized as honey and being presented and um, the qualitative value of honey um, being represented by the plant that it came from and the, the bees, the work that they do, um, there is a sensory analysis training there, very similar to becoming like a, a wine sommelier. You can become a honey sommelier. So I've been going through that program for several years, but because um, of COVID and traveling being a little bit um, changed, um, I've had to sort of take a pause. But in doing the training, I sort of developed a bit of a catalog of different honeys and how to detect them. And you start by smell and then by taste. And I mean, it's just a grueling process on a Claire. And when I say grueling, I'm laughing because it's like eight hours a day for three days of just eating honey, all different honeys. Oh my gosh. That sounds <laughs> I know, <amazing>. right? <laughs> just so <I> terrible. <laughs> so besides that, I also have had the really good fortune to attend um, honey shows here in Florida. Our university, our state university puts on a honey show and a lot of state universities and um, beekeeping um, organizations, whether they be local or state, usually have, um, there's a lot of pride and, and it's very similar to like a state fair or where there's like a, a competition for jam or anything like that there will be um, honey shows and people will enter their honeys and they, well, they have to be judged, right? In order to figure out who gets the prize. So in order to be a judge, there's some training involved. And I've also participated in that style of training. So um, I'm considered a, um, a honey judge and also a mead judge. So I get to travel in that respect as well and taste honey. So some of my favorites, I'm going to start with here in the U.S., there is, um, I think we talked about this one, maybe, um, fireweed. It grows in like Washington and Alaska. And fireweed honey is literally like, oh my gosh, it's an explosion of like sweetness in your mouth. It's almost like 
cotton candy meets a flower with a lingering sweetness and like meringue is melting on your tongue. It's so good. Uh Um, So whenever I can get my hands on some fireweed honey, I sure do. And I would say from Europe, England, Ireland, those regions, there's a specific heather. um, There's a few heathers. And I know there's one in Russia that um, I've tried from like the Belarus area and it was much different than the ones I had tried in um, in England and Ireland and Northern Ireland. But the ling heather is it, it's a honey that is uh, fixed atrophic, so it gets like a gelatinous texture to it. It's really like a jelly more than a honey, um, and it has a bit of a rose-like um, quality to it in both aroma and taste. So that's one of my favorites, and it's it's hard to get in quantity. So whenever I get a little jar, I kind of savor it. Um, those are the only two that I feel like I could mention right now. Oh, from here, from Florida, I should tell you, I love saw palmetto honey. So Serenoa repens is an amazing plant in so many ways. And the fragrance coming from the flower spikes in the spring here with the heat hitting them is just amazing. The bees go bonkers for it. And the honey produced is really something to be excited about. It's a little malty, a little caramelly has a little bit of a woody spice to it. Um, and I like it a lot. So I could talk about honey all day, but I'm going to dive more into that diversity topic because it isn't really all about honey. Honey is this amazing thing that honey, that pollinators um, can produce by collecting nectar, but it really is a food source for them. You know, the complex sugars that are available, the minerals, anything that's available from the plant being healthy or the species of pollinator and their health, to the time of year, to the weather, to what's happening um, astrologically. I mean, there's so many different factors happening um, that are gonna affect the honey, but that's only one aspect of it. There's the pollen and the pollen is something else that I feel is very special and worth noting to everybody. I mean, it's the spark of life and a flower it's something that's transferred from one flower to another and it literally literally creates and replicates the, the the plant into the fruit that we consume or the food that we consume and sometimes without pollinators that activity doesn't happen at all and the pollen is um, electromagnetically the opposite charged the opposite of what the honeybees are and many pollinators are completely coated in these cute little hairs all over their bodies even their eyeballs have hair And when they visit a flower, the pollen is naturally um, attracted to their bodies and they move from flower to flower. And as they do so, they leave behind some of the pollen that they collected, therefore completing the process of pollination. And that's how we're lucky enough to eat so many delicious foods. So not only that, but the pollen itself is consumed by people and animals and is, you know, very nutritious. It's loaded in plant-based protein, minerals, again, just like the, the nectar or saps, you know, the, the compounds, um, anything that the, the plant can secrete, you know, whether it be volatile oils or anything that we would regard in, in nature that we could measure. Well, any, anything quanti- that's quantitatively measurable can be found in the honey or the leaves or the stem or the soil. And, you know, there's so many different ways that we could look at this. Um, But the pollen itself is very nutritious. um, And a lot, all throughout human history, people have been eating pollen. Um, And then that brings me to a few other things. I've studied a little bit about, um, and this is more of a holistic approach to beekeeping, 
a little bit about all aspects of the products of the hive, including the air. I've, I've met people who have had some health problems and have literally spent time breathing the air from the hive in order to um, benefit their health. If they've had issues with autoimmune disorder or lung issues or um, a myriad of other things. And this is something that can be researched through traditional Chinese medicine and many other um, many other avenues. Um, but there's also, and people ask this one a lot, is bee venom therapy. Um, and bee venom therapy is um, also not a new thing. It's been around for a really, really long time. Venom has been studied um, by wasps for possibly being anti-carcinogenic. And that's something you can look up on like PubMed. It's not um, anecdotal or um, just in our herbal community. It's literally being studied by science. So um, venom is definitely something that is recognized as um, being something that could be helpful in medicine. Um, and honeybees are actually descended from wasps. So wasps are the older genus of, um, of that family of apidae, and they've been on the planet the longest. And honeybees are literally like a vegetarian version of a wasp. Um, so bee venom therapy, I have actually taken some... Um, some classes on administering bee venom therapy. It's, it's, it's tricky to do legally, um, but it is something that I've met a lot of people who will administer it to themselves if they have any um, inflammation, pain, um, fibromyalgia, of course, Lyme's disease. There's, uh, there is an American apitherapy society that you can join to learn more. You can um, practice um, with bees if you want to by getting bees from a beekeeper. We've offered bees to people who have issues with their health, but we're a little reticent to administer bee, sting, um, bee stings to people because there's a legal liability um, to somebody that might have an allergy. I'm actually certified through my county um, to administer it without the liability, but I still am very um, overly cautious about doing so. And I, I will have people sign a waiver and, and many other things. But a lot of time I like to teach people how to administer the, the things to themselves and then offer them the bees. Um, and it's, it's the same thing I say for bee venom therapy. I say the same thing about pollen. If you could to determine if you're allergic to a bee product, it's nice to maybe try maybe just like one granule of pollen and do that for a few days and then increase to two granules of pollen and then so on and so forth. If you're having, if you're tolerating pollen pretty well, you can eventually administer what I would consider a micro sting, which is uh, removing the sting from the bee, which in effect does kill them. People will ask me, so I want to be clear about that now. It's really hard to remove the stinger from a bee or have a bee sting you without the bee dying. So that's a, a consideration um, for you is just to be aware of that fact. If there was a way to do it, and, and there is a way that bees can sting a plate of glass by getting a small um, pulse, um, almost like a small shock, which doesn't harm them, but may agitate them quite a bit. And they would sting the plate of glass and leave a little bit of venom behind. That venom is then collected and then produced into the same venom that people would receive in a shot if they're allergic to bees through an allergist. Um, so I've been trying to learn more about this practice because if there was a way I could collect venom and maybe even bring it to an acupuncturist, I think it would be fascinating to see if people could get some benefit from the venom without actually harming the bees. But a micro sting, back to the micro sting, would just be touching your skin briefly with the stinger and not letting the stinger stay in your skin. 
And that would give you an idea of how you tolerate the venom. Um, if you tolerate that, you might consider working up to um, a, a macro sting. So leaving the stinger in for maybe like 20 or 30 seconds. And if you ever do ramp up to the point where you want to actually have a full sting, um, you would allow the bee to sting you while it's alive and leave the stinger in for no more than a, a few minutes. I mean, 60 seconds really is a lot. I've met a lot of people who would practice bee venom therapy, very similar to acupuncture, but by then the body recognizes the stinger as, as an allergy and will start to try to, you know, kick that stinger out and, and make more histamine than is necessary and you'll have more of a reaction to it. And there are a lot of things you can do pre a sting to um, thwart or negate some of the Herxheimer reaction or, or sting. You can ice the area down. Um, there's parts of the body that are better to sting than others. I always tell people to be very, take this very um, seriously. If you're gonna consider this, if you have a health issue, it's good to nurture your body and slowly work on um, bee venom therapy because it's very detoxifying and the medicine is very strong. So if you have had a chronic issue for a very long time, think about working very slowly with things that you can get from the bees in order to negate or abate some of your pain and ailments. Um, a lot of people are like very excited about how this might help them and they just want to go very quickly into it. Um, but I would say exercise a little bit of caution and add um, nourishment take time to detoxify and rest and slowly build up your tolerance to the venom in order to, to work with it. And the other things that come from the hive that are um, of uh, great interest, and I hear about a lot of people ask me, are royal jelly, which is basically, I would liken it to a mammal's milk, except for it comes from the cute little honeybee who has this hypopharyngeal gland in her head. And so these young bees that are born become nurse bees early in life and they produce this royal jelly and they deposit it into the honeycomb in order for the larvae that are um, developing and pupating. And if you have um, a good set of readers like I do, you can look into the cell and you can see the larva pulsating and drinking the, the royal jelly and that's their nourishment. Um, it's loaded with RNA, DNA, lots of nutrients, and it's the food of the pupil developing um, larval and pupil stage of honeybee all the way through till they're born, as well as honey and pollen. Uh, once they're born, they're primarily fed honey, just nectar and pollen for the rest of their life, unless they're going to become a queen bee. So the queen bee um, eats exclusively royal jelly for her entire life, um, and that's the main difference. Um, in their developing their um, reproductive organs at a larval stage and um, the duration of their lifespan, which is up to about seven years versus the other female bees, which is about 30 to 40 days. Um, and finally, larvae. Many cultures consume larvae. Um, larvae is um, considered a protein. Um, obviously it would be more considered um, an animal or insect um, diet than a plant-based diet. Um, and it is um, used in many ways, but you can do some research on it. Um, typically, I've heard of women using the queen bee larva if they have issues with hormones. Um, and you don't have to consume many, but you know they are going to be um, rich in certain um, compounds. Um, uh, other female larva, the worker bee larva, could be consumed. I've had people um, blend them in smoothies, and I've um, tried it myself. 
I've also tried it in soup. They're a little sour. And if you blend it in something, you can kind of forget that it's there or maybe tell somebody I would like to try it, but don't tell me it's in there. That might be a good way. Um, and for men who also have issues or are possibly looking to work on um, hormonal balancing, the drone or male bee uh, larva has been used. Um, and I've seen um, a lot of research on that culturally. Um, and again, it's a protein source. So if you're not opposed to eating insects and you're hungry and you get stuck out in the wild and you're willing to climb a cliff, you could find some honey and some protein <laughs> all, in the same, all at the same time. It's a few ifs thrown in there, but it's, it's a viable option at least. <laughs> yes. Wow. I had, okay. So I, I had heard of bee venom therapy before, and I've of course heard of the pollen and you know, it's, it's almost like this somewhat new trend to like throw pollen in smoothies. And I've always thought, you know, I've, what you were saying about starting with one granule and then building up to two, um, I had been recommended bee pollen at one point years ago. And that's how I was introduced to it, to, to introduce it to my own diet really slowly. And so I've always kind of wondered about if people go into a smoothie shop and they're just getting like a half a teaspoon or a teaspoon of bee pollen, if they're not used to that and they do potentially have, you know, a histamine reaction or something that could be pretty unpleasant. So I, you know, I, I can't help but wonder if people are educating about that. I've never been educated about that in a smoothie shop, but it seems like it would be an interesting consideration. Um, but certainly I knew I've heard of Royal jelly, but I didn't really know what it was. I never really knew um, how it was made or where it came from. So that's really interesting to know. And consuming larva, I have never heard of. So I'm like just super fascinated right now, but also just really fascinated going back to the bee venom therapy. And I had heard of this, but to hear you speak of it on this level of the micro sting and the macro sting and the full sting and sort of the preparation that you can do ahead of time. I mean, that's just like a whole new world to explore. Um, especially I know you mentioned, um, it being potentially anti-carcinogenic and for inflammation and pain and Lyme disease. And, and I would imagine, I know you said autoimmune disorders for the, um, the air from the hive, which, oh my gosh, that's another one I've never heard of. Um, but this just seems like, you know, such an interesting thing to explore, um, for all the people who it seems the more time passes, the more people that we hear of having these sorts of chronic issues that can be really debilitating. And that also a lot of times can cause a lot of pain. Um, so to work with bees in this totally different way, um, is so beautiful. And especially, I mean, just breathing the air from the hive, that sounds amazing. I've never experienced that, but it, it reminds me of earlier in our conversation when you were talking about the smell and the how, fragrance. Well, yeah, your first experience and I can't say that I know what a beehive smells like, but I know when I burn beeswax candles and when I smell honey or anything that is kind of reminiscent of that, there's something that's just really sort of warming and nourishing and, and just kind of gives you that feel good feeling. Um, so I can only imagine to sort of immerse yourself in that experience could be healing on so many different levels. I think you would be hooked on the fragrance pretty instantly, honestly. I mean, there's times of the year where we go to work the bees and we can tell what's blooming. We can really smell um, the increase in uh, reproduction in the hive. I mean, it's just unique. And 
even when the bees are agitated, there's uh, people use the word banana to describe the fragrance of an agitated hive. If you smell bananas, you should walk away. Your hive is pretty pissed off and you're going to get stung a lot, you know? So wow. um, it's, a, it's neat to know that there's like some sensory um, words and some things I can do to describe it. You know what though? I left out propolis. I say propolis. Do you say propolis? Or I say prop- propolis. I say propolis. Okay, cool. Also. I can't even believe I left propolis out because it's such an important product of the bees and there's also beeswax. So those two things I just want to touch on real quick, if that's okay. Yeah, of course. So beeswax, the bees have to secrete from the fatty acids they produce by consuming pollen, which has some essential fatty acids, believe it or not. And, um, you know, I always tell the story to adults and children about how we make earwax. And I know that sounds kind of silly, but you know, it does serve a purpose in our body. It does protect, protect our ears and, um, honeybees produce wax as well. They have these little scales on the underside of their abdomen where the little flakes of wax will come out and it's literally created from the fatty acids that they eat. So imagine how their diet really does need to be full of hydration and oils and all the, all the same balancing things that you would imagine that, that we would need and they would need. Um, but they literally build their entire home out of the wax by hand, by their cute little feet. And they measure everything with their body parts and they work together collectively to make their hive. It's, it's really pretty admirable um, to, to witness and to see. I mean, the bees, if there's a word festoon, if you look up festooning, an image of honeybees festooning, It's this cute little chain of bees holding each other's hands. And they do that within the hive because they're measuring the distance from one section of comb to the next. And they also pass the little pieces of comb back and forth to each other, chew it up, warm it up, and eventually get to the bee at the end of the chain. And then it gets built into the, to the honeycomb that they not only the eggs get laid in and they develop in, in, but they also store their food in, um, the hive is an amazing place and um, the beeswax is something that we've long revered as a source of energy for, you know, candles and for using in the products that we make into salves and so many other things that we do. And so just taking a minute to talk about it and a lot of the fragrance that's in the honey and the pollen and what plant it came from and what part of the world and what species of pollinator worked with it translates to the wax. I I got to go to Greece about five or six years ago, and we were walking down a path in this beautiful piece of property on the island of Crete. And we, we came upon this little teeny church and we opened the door. And the first thing that hit me was the fragrance of beeswax. And these cute little candles were up on the altar. And I almost will, I don't think I'll ever forget the smell. And it was unlike the smell of wax from my bees or anything I had ever smelled. So it was just another one of those experiences that I won't ever forget. And I love to share with people because, um, you know, wherever you go in the world, there's going to be plants, right. And there's going to be pollinators and depending on what's happening there in that part of the world is definitely going to dictate that, that, um, that fragrance or the way that wax looks or, um, and being a honey judge has been a unique opportunity for me because I get to judge candles and I get to judge candles from people from all over the world. So I get to, rub the beeswax candle and smell it and kind of just, you know, admire that. So beeswax is really special to me. And propolis is a little different because the bees have to collect it. 
And it's a lot harder for them to collect than it is pollen or nectar. It's very sticky. It's, you know, if you've ever touched a, a conifer that had sap on it and cursed a little bit because it took you a couple of days to get the sap off of you or whatever it was that, that touched it, um, you can relate to this because the bees have to collect enough of it that it's worth their while. And then they have to go back to the hive and it can take them almost hours to slowly warm that up and get it off their body. And they use the propolis in the hive as sort of a glue to hold things together, to seal cracks. Um, and they can sting a, an invader. Bees are predated by lots of things, right? They're in this cute little cavity in a tree and a mouse is like, wow, there's food in there. There's warmth in there. I'm just gonna snuggle all up inside of there. And the bees are like, oh no, you're not. And they sting the mouse until the mouse perishes. And then they entomb the mouse in propolis. Can you imagine how much propolis it would take to entomb a little mouse? Wow. What happens is they create a hygienic environment whereby the mouse can decay inside that propolis and not cause disease or uh, attract any other bugs or anything else that would make the hive unsanitary. So it's, it acts as a way for them to keep their hive clean. Um, humans have been consuming propolis and using propolis for all different things for, for so long. And there's a lot of really great research about, about propolis out there as well, as it, as far as it being antiviral and antibacterial, uh, hormonal, um, normalizer, it's really helpful for women entering menopause. There's different types of propolis from all different plants, red, green, you know, you name it. So it's really neat to get familiar with them and what their benefit is and, and how to use it. I like using propolis for a week or two and then taking a little break. Um, I like using it topically for a wound. Um, I like using it as a throat spray. I'm really thankful when there's a little propolis in the hive that I could take off and drop in my little bucket and keep going and, and I can bring it home and steep it in some grain alcohol and wait patiently for it to break down and become a nice tincture. Um, so those two things were important to me to mention. Was there something else I said I was going to talk about after that? Kind of went on a little bit. <laughs> I, think, I think that, I think those were the only two that you mentioned, but my brain okay. is just like reeling here with all of this information. It's, it's amazing. I mean, these beautiful, adorable little insects, which by the way, while you were talking, I did a quick little search on my phone for festooning. Highly recommend that everybody listening does the same because it's the cutest thing. It's like a little string light of honeybees. It's so adorable. It's um, so adorable. And I remember <laughs> what the other thing was. I was oh. going to tell you that you may not find a lot of information about this out there, but um, the vibration, the buzzing frequency of the hive is something to really be thankful for. Um you can also look for that, that sound. You can find that um, easily online and, it, and it's something that's very soothing and calming. I've learned to listen to the bees. I've learned to hear their sound from lower pitches that, that are very um, soft and subtle to very high and more, they must be agitated sounding um, vibrations um, and their frequencies and their vibrations have been measured. So you can find out what megahertz um, is a good one for bees that they're calm. And I've heard of people using them for their own health. Um, and I know personally, if I'd like to sit with the bees for a little while, um, I feel much better just hearing them, feeling them. You can place your hands. If you do find bees in nature, um, you can place your hands 
near them, but I want to explain how so that you're safe. Because I love introducing people to bees, but the last thing I want to do is have you get hurt, right? So honeybees, usually when they live in a cavity or a hive, um, have an entrance and sometimes multiple entrances. So the first thing you want to do is look for their flight path. So you want to see where they're coming and going. And this is how you stay safe. Um, you can identify that area and be sure of it. Take a couple minutes. Don't rush. Uh, make sure you feel comfortable and you look down and around you because you want to make sure your footing is secure. You want to make sure that you can walk where you're going and it's a safe place for you to be in case there is an issue and you have to move quickly. Okay. Once you identify where the entrance is and the flight pattern, you can actually see the direction the bees are going. Sometimes they're going in multiple directions. Sometimes there's so many bees coming and going from the hive at the same time. It looks like an airport, a very busy airport. And sometimes it's very slow. And um, that's also something to pay attention to when there's a lot of activity. Um, the hive is very populous and it could not be, but that's, that's one thing that we like to think, you know, to, to be cautious of that the hive is very big. If there's not a lot of activity, there may be um, maybe a smaller hive or less activity for some reason. So never stand right in the flight path, okay? Always stand on the side of a hive and you so that the flight path is something you can see at all times. If you're around the side or the rear of a hive and you're very slow in your movements, you could possibly get close to a hive or even touch the side of a tree or a beehive without them even caring that you're there. If your movements are jerky or you fall or you bump into them, it's very likely that some of the bees that are guarding the hive or protecting the hive are gonna come out and either let you know they're upset and they want you to leave or sting you right away. So please don't take my advice as this being something to do without being cautious. You can even put on protective clothing like a long shirt, um, some sort of veil or something covering your face. Um, the one thing that will help you too is if you, they can see your pupils and they can smell your breath. So if you feel, if you ever feel unsafe from a, a beehive, you can look down and cover your eyes, not so much that you can't see, but enough that it's hard for them to see your pupils and sort of cover your breath a little bit. And then don't run too quickly. If you have to ever get away from a beehive, you might suffer a few stings if you're ever in the circumstance that I'm describing, but just walk steadily and try to walk safely to move away because after 10, 20 to 50 feet, less bees will be um, interacting with you unless you're dealing with a race of um, bees or type of pollinator that is more aggressive. So usually those tips will be helpful, but feeling the vibration and hearing the bees is something that I hope everybody that's listening gets to experience at some point in their lifetime. And with that, I hope the information that I shared is uh, something that touches everyone in a really positive way. I'm so glad you shared that. Um, that's also something that I wouldn't have thought of, but it makes perfect sense to me. I actually spent um, an hour yesterday morning. I met up with one of the girls that went to Peru with us and we met up downtown in Asheville and we went to a sound healing session together. And Amazing. They, did, they didn't have bees there, but they did have a number of instruments and gongs and flutes and rattles and drums, all sorts of different instruments. And, you know, I just to lay, yeah, I mean, it's so amazing. It's so healing. And, you know, we, we know now that everything is energy and everything is vibration and frequency. And we're constantly bombarded with all these different frequencies and vibrations and the frequency at, at which they 
resonate really makes a difference in how we feel. And, you know, I think that's part of the thing when you walk into a room and you're picking up on all these different vibes, literally vibrations, you know, you can walk into a room and be like, oh, this doesn't feel good or wow, I feel really welcome here or safe or happy or whatever the case may be. Um, so I can only imagine with that consistent buzzing and especially if, like you said, if the bees are, you know, in a good mood or not agitated and they're, they're working and they're calm and, um, I, I really hope that I do good. get to experience this someday because it yeah. sounds amazing. Um, I want to just also reflect back to a little bit earlier when you were talking about your experience with tasting honey and with judging honey. First of all, that sounds amazing. Um, I am a very sensory person. And actually in some of the herbal classes that I teach, I teach about this process of organoleptic analysis, which is learning and, and using our senses to really understand uh, a plant or whatever it is that we're talking about. And so I have this interesting thing where a lot of times I will actually smell plants before I see them. Um, so it's kind of like what you're talking about where you walk into a space and you're like, oh, there must be bees around. You know, I could be walking down a path and be like, oh, nettles are growing somewhere around here. I can smell them. And, you know, and nettles. It's amazing. I love it. I mean, it, it, it was so interesting the first time I had that experience. And I was like, wait a minute, it smells like nettles here. And somebody else was like, oh, it just smells like cat pee to me. And I'm like, yeah, but that's kind of the nettle smell, <laughs> you know, um, but also a lot of times they're not even that fragrant unless you kind of brush up against them. And it's funny that nettles is coming up for me because when you were talking about interacting with the hive, that also made me think about nettles because there's, you know, um, for people who aren't aware, there's a plant called stinging nettles and they, you'll literally get stung um, if you brush up against them or if you wander through a patch and you're not paying attention. But there is a way to interact with stinging nettles where you won't necessarily get stung. And it really comes down to your intention and the respect that you have for the plant or in your case for the bees and their hive and their environment where you can find this sort of compromise and happy balance of interacting with these different sentient beings, right? And, and where you're not disturbing them. And so I've noticed, you know, if I don't know that nettles are around for some reason, and I'm just kind of walking all willy nilly, and then all of a sudden I feel a sting. But if I know nettles are there, or if I'm being a lot more slow and mindful in my walk, um, then I can approach them and I can touch them. I was in Peru one time and actually was like showing people how to pet nettles and how to like interact with nettles and not get stung. And you can even, there's even a way that you can fold up the leaf. And um, I wouldn't recommend doing this without knowing how to properly do it, which I'm not going to walk through right now, but you can fold up the leaf in a, in a certain way and eat it raw without getting stung. Um, it does take a lot of diligence and awareness around your process there. But I think that's a really important point. Um, and, and it just reminded me of that when you were talking about approaching a hive and, and how to do that. so with caution and care and reverence. Right. Right. And that um, reminds me of the ancestral piece too. I feel mm -hmm. like remembering is part of the information that we not only share with each other, but we share with nature. We let them know that we're there. We see them, we hear them, we feel them. We're, we're mindful, you know, we're, we're remembering, we're sharing with each other, and that's going to only assist the balance in the future, right? Absolutely. It's all about right relationship. And I think that that yeah. is one of the most important lessons that we can 
um, apply to our lives right now that we can really dive into. Um, and, and with this sensory analysis that you talked about too, and sort of this honey sommelier sort of thing, um, not only does it sound fun, but I just think that I love how you were sort of describing the different attributes and it did sound like describing a wine, you know, and there's all these different really specific, I know with wine, it can be like, you know, this one is like leathery and old books and, you know, green grass and all these different things. And it's so fun to think about that with honeys and, and with other, you know, various products that we get from the natural world. Um, but so also, good. There's a flavor wheel. There's a yeah, flavor wheel oh, for I honey and, <laughs> and cat pee is on there. <laughs> I almost said that one too, but I already said cat pee. So I was like, maybe I won't say that again, <laughs> but it is, it's funny because they talk about yeah. that with, with, um, with wines too. So that's hilarious, but you know, it Gasoline. makes sense because it's all about the terroir, right? Like it's the right. environment where these things yeah. are coming from. And so they take on the properties of the plants that they're interacting yeah. with. And I, I, it makes total sense that that would come through the honey too. And it's organoleptic, just like you said, we, if we can detect what honey it is just from smell alone, not only is the specimen a good specimen of honey, but we can be sure that we're offering something to the consumer. So as a business owner and a producer of products at the end of the day, I mean, just to think for two seconds about the pollen, right? At the smoothie bar, where did the pollen come from? You know, if we're eating any large quantity of anything at all at this point in the game, where did it come from? Like what plant, what quality is it? What regulatory body is making sure that I am putting a good quality product in the bottle to give to you? Like those are questions that I really have a hard time answering because without getting involved in the regulatory process or being involved in politics, which I've done a little of both, but I'm taking a nice break because as I go through life and I age, I want to do more of the things that serve and make me happy. And those things are a little tedious and tough and take a lot of time out of my day. But I want to make sure that I'm giving you a product that's good for your health. And I want to make sure the honey in the bottle is what it says it is. And I want to make sure that my bees are cared for and that the quality of the water and the soil and the plants and everything around them is good. But without telling that story, you know, it's really hard to say. And that's why I'm so thankful that places like Italy are very specific about making sure that the honey in the bottle is the beekeeper gets to learn and the consumer also gets the product that it's supposed to be. And um, it's something that we can continue to to work on together. I think that's such an important point um, that you're mentioning here, because consumers have gotten more and more um, aware of what we're talking about here and really asking where our foods are coming from and looking at the labels. But, you know, when you buy a jar of honey, oftentimes there's, there's, you know, the only thing the label really says is honey. And a lot of times maybe they'll tell you the type of flower that's predominant in that type of honey, whether it's, you know, a clover honey or an orange blossom honey or, or what have you. Um, but there's no really real way of knowing where it's coming from, how it's being, um, harvested or processed or whatever else. So this is, this is a really interesting and important aspect that you're mentioning here. And I, I actually, I have one more thing that I want to say about the sensory aspect, because I was almost floored when you said that your one of your favorite honeys is saw palmetto honey and saw palmetto, Serenora repens is, as you mentioned, a really 
wonderful, amazing therapeutic medicinal plant. And the tincture of saw palmetto is one of the grossest tinctures <laughs> I've ever tasted. And it's funny because when I worked in um, an apothecary for years, we would sort of have this back and forth conversation about, well, what is the grossest, like what is the tincture that's just the hardest for you to get down? And a lot of people would say things like echinacea or valerian yep. or even um, like prickly ash because it's like echinacea where it just like sets your whole mouth tingling or like yeah. spilanthes and you're just like constantly yeah. salivating and spitting everywhere. Um, but saw palmetto was the one for me because to me, it kind of tastes like bile, which is just a nasty, nasty flavor. The berries smell disgusting. When they do. Them, I mean, when they're ripe and people are going to pick them, it's literally like an atrocity, but I don't ever have to deal with that because the fragrance from the flowers and the nectar is intoxicating and the bees work them very quickly in the earlier part of the spring. And then all of a sudden there's another bug that comes out called a love bug cute name. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of them? I've heard of them. I don't know much. About oh, them, though. well, there's always two of them together. Hence the love bug, right? Right. They, they also stink. So between like the berries and the love bugs, the bees are like out of there. They're like gone. So they do their thing. They get out of there. And then the honey itself is just magic. But none of that stinkiness translates. <laughs> That's unless, good to know. I figured there had to be something else going on. Right, there, but you're talking there about are it. times. There are times when Malaluca blooms at the same time as the the saw palmetto, and that honey, not so good. <laughs> so Malaluca is a stinky honey that we don't really care for too much, and I don't have too many people that ever request Malaluca honey. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I am definitely intrigued now. If I ever I'm in Florida or Georgia or somewhere where I see saw palmetto honey. I will, I will try it because now I'm intrigued. Um, given my oh, I'll experience. Send you some, girl. Oh, I, I would. Okay. I'm excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be a new experience and give me a whole new spin on my, um, you know, sort of my analysis of the tastes of saw palmetto. So I would love to experience this in a different way. <laughs> awesome. Oh gosh, Jen. Well, I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Thank you for being here today and for sharing all of this wisdom and for sharing this passion of yours with us. It's so clear in how you speak of this work that you do and, and this the joy that you receive from it. And just knowing your energy and being around your energy, I absolutely know and believe that it's going back to these hives and to the bees and and to all that they're doing and that's such a beautiful reciprocal process and um and we didn't talk about mead but i want to try your mead one day too so that might have to be a whole other something conversation one day um, i am down for that <laughs> and thank you i mean for me it's a gift um to be able to share it and there isn't a day that goes by that I don't feel lucky and very fortunate to have some of the understanding that I shared with you, which in my humble opinion is just a little sliver of this magic of being alive. And I'm going to continue on the path and I'm going to continue smiling and sharing. And I'm lucky enough to get to know people like you and hopefully some of the listeners and 
I'm always excited about the topic. So, and I learned so much about you today. So thank you. I'm so excited that you like or- organoleptics. Woo! Yes. I'm a, I'm a total nerd about organoleptics. I love it. So, <laughs> so we're, we can, we can nerd out on some organoleptics when we see each other next in Costa Rica. Yes. So that'll be exciting. So yeah, thank you again so much. It, it really has just been an honor and a joy to have you here today. And I'm excited to see you soon. And we'll have to taste some honey together and just keep diving deeper. And I'm excited to see where this path continues to lead you. Me too. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to Sage and Spirit. You can download more episodes and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Google Podcasts. For more show notes and guest information, visit dancingsagewellness.com. Until next time, take care and be well.